From the power of voices in Los Angeles, it's Full Body Frequency. And I'm Laura Rice, your host. And today on Full Body Frequency, we celebrate the mother you have, the mother you lost, the mother village in your life, and the mother in you. It's no secret that mothers are our first teachers and our first examples and experiences of unconditional love. Katera Washington Patton, author of Successful Moms of the Bible, is here to share how you don't need to master the latest parenting trends because the best parenting advice has already been written. It's in the Bible. Whether you're a first-time mother with a newborn, have school-aged children, teens, are an empty nester or a mother figure. The heartwarming and hilarious Successful Moms of the Bible is for you. We'll also revisit our interview with Linda R.M. Jones. Growing up, Linda's mother would often say to her, beauty is as beauty does, and you've got a long way to go. In her book, Cordelia and Me, The Pains, Challenges, and Journey of Becoming Me, Jones explores the revelation of self-discovery, self-love, and the love of others in spite of childhood wounds and abuse. And for those of you mourning the loss of mothers, we'll explore redefining Mother's Day with Black Women and Mother Loss, Five Steps for Getting Through Mother's Day by Liz Alexander. After this quick break, Full Body Frequency returns with Katera Washington-Patton, author of Successful Moms of the Bible. We'll be right back. Major key alert, don't ever play yourself. You want to get that paper to secure the bag? You better turn in that paper and get an A+. Learn the real major keys to getting to college at GetSchooled.com. The key is to make it, so make it. Brought to you by Get Schooled and the Ad Council. Full Body Frequency is back, and I'm so pleased to welcome my first guest. She has a Master's of Divinity from Garrett Theological Seminary. She was part of a team that developed Aspire, the new women of color study Bible for strength and inspiration. And she has written and edited a number of best-selling Christian books for children, teens, and adults. Katara Washington-Patton, welcome to Full Body Frequency. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So let's just get started with this. We know that children don't come with instructions. Oh, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) But there are tons of books to read on child rearing. Mm -hmm. So how did you decide to write a book on successful motherhood and choose the Bible as your guide? Well, quite frankly, Laura, I'm a mom and I know every minute counts these days. I want to have devotion. I want to read the Bible. I want to feel closer to God. And at the same time, I want to be a really great mom and get information. So what better way than to merge all of that together into one book? It's kind of a how-to, how to be a mom without pulling your hair out, how to be a village keeper, someone taking care of somebody's kids without (laughs) pulling your hair out, yet also getting closer to God through your relationship with understanding the people in the Bible, their faith journey, and how that impacts you as a mom and a woman today. We got to keep growing, even though we're having these kids. <laughs> now, and and the great thing about your book is that it's hilarious in many parts. I mean, you use family antidotes, and you mention, of course, your daughter and your husband, and and all of that. So, what actually prompted you to put such wonderful stories and humorous stories in there? Because when we we talk about faith walks, we often talk about the the really hard times. And these women do go through some challenges and they overcome some challenges. But you put a, again, you put a dose of humor in there (laughs) that makes it light and just refreshing. Well, that's great to hear, Laura, because people don't want to just read stories that don't have a level of human interest as well as entertainment. We do read for all of those reasons. And in Successful Moms of the Bible, we looked at 10 women who, like you said, had ups and downs. And then I applied my life as well as things I've observed as a mother um, into the stories. And my editor, who's very, very great, she often says, people want to hear your story. People will learn through your story. So many of my stories happen to have a little bit of humor in them because I come from a funny family. My father's hilarious. My husband's hilarious. And quite frankly, when you learn to look at life, as hilarious as the things were (laughs) happening to us, as humorous, it can make it lighter. 
And I'm happy people laugh when they read it because again, it is designed to be a book that helps people, one, grow closer to God, learn about some people in the Bible they may not have known, but also learn how to be a better person at the end of the day. If you've just tuned in, this is Full Body Frequency, and I'm Laura Rice. My guest this segment is Katera Washington-Patton. She's a writer and editor of Christian books for children, teens, and adults. She's also a wife, mother, and daughter, and a sister. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about her book, Successful Moms of the Bible, which is available in bookstores and online right now. In Successful Moms of the Bible, you again, you've chosen 10 women, starting with Mary, mm -hmm. through the wife in Proverbs 31. So let's talk a bit about each of these mothers and the lessons they can teach us about mothering, okay. starting with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary was actually one of my favorite stories. It's really how this book got started. Mary is surprised by motherhood. We know this story. She is the one who's about to get married, engaged to Joseph, and all of a sudden an angel says, you're about to have a baby. That can bring good news and that can make you sad. <laughs> <laughs> and in her case, I take the passage from the message translation where it says, Mary, God has a surprise for you. And then I turn that around to everyone who's taking care of kids. Isn't it a surprise? This is a journey. Something that child will say today can turn into a lesson for you. Something they do tomorrow can make you cry. It's just a journey. And so Mary kind of helps remind us that it's a journey. In addition, Mary raises the savior of the world. I mean, she clearly has the motherhood thing down, even though she's <laughs> surprised by motherhood. But um, even when Jesus was going through things, one thing I noticed throughout all the scriptures was Mary pondered what was told to her when she was pregnant. And I find, I tell that to women all the time, if we just kind of think about those secret messages, the things God gave us in our hearts about these kids, that can help us when we want to wring their neck or <laughs> do something that we shouldn't be doing. It can remind us, hey, this is a child that God gave you. This is a gift and God gave it to you for a reason. Accept it, it's a part of the journey. You say that successful moms pray and hold on to God's promises so they can serve, nurture, and develop their children. Yes. But you also write about Mary that motherhood changes us. So yeah. what are some of the ways in which motherhood changed you and expanded your faith walk and service to others? Oh my goodness. From the moment I found out I was having a child, and I mentioned that in this book, I started praying. I prayed for God to cut child. I prayed for protection. I prayed for her husband. Her and when I found out it was a girl, I I started praying because you all of a sudden become worried and frazzled, and you can think a mile a minute, uh, and you it's just you know an overwhelming task. So I talk about how we can turn the that worry into prayers. And that's exactly what Mary did. Instead of just always fretting about, Lord, this boy got caught in the temple again, and we don't know where he's at. <laughs> so, oh, they're going to crucify him. She, be, she just pondered. She turned her worries into prayers. And that's what I suggest moms do also. Because we can worry. We, I mean, we worry from what school they're going to get into, what friends they're going to have. When they get older, we worry about them driving and making decisions and drugs and bullies. It's amazing. I never thought I could worry about so much. <laughs> <laughs> then there's Moses' mother, Jacobet, who, of course, had lots to worry about. Yes, she did. She was right in the midst of what I call a war on boys. Literally, the king had said he did not want any more Israelite boys born. They were threatened. Now, doesn't that sound familiar to some things we hear today? Oh, Even yeah. Even before they got to be two years old, he made an order. Any boy two years old or under must be killed. That didn't work. So then he said, okay, midwives, when you deliver these Hebrew Israelite kids, I want you to kill them. So they didn't even have a chance starting out. It's so parallel to the preschool to prison pipeline and other issues affecting people in the communities. This is a very good role model for women concerned about their children's protection, concerned about protecting these kids. And I love Jacobet because she was willing to give her son up to save his life. She said he will not die. Why? Because she knew he was a special child too. God had given her special secrets about Moses. And look at what he became. He did become a great liberator. 
So to moms who are struggling, who think this is the hardest job in the world, yes, it is. But look at what could result from that. Your child might be the liberator God uses to rescue people, to save people, to cure people, to help in amazing ways. So you got to keep going. You got to look to Jacobed and see that she was willing to be that mama bear and intervene wherever she had to. Absolutely. Protecting her children at all costs. At all costs. Mm -hmm. Mama bear. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Now, through Hannah, you illustrate that successful moms always pray for their children from conception through adulthood. Mm -hmm. So what does praying for one's children or one's child do for the mother and for her child? Well, it actually puts you in the right mindset. It gives you the right attitude. And most importantly, it continues to develop your relationship with God. And that's the takeaway from Hannah. Hannah's story was rough also. Hannah was basically suffering from infertility and she had no child and her husband had another wife and this wife was something else. And she held it against her and said, Hey, look how many kids I got. You don't have any Hannah. You know how some women unfortunately can do, Mm -hmm. but Hannah prayed to God and Hannah said, Lord, if you just give me a child, I will give him back to you. And think about that. I mean, the one thing she wanted, she agreed to give back to God. And she did do that. When she got pregnant, her child was Samuel. She brought him to the temple and gave him to the priest to say, hey, let's use him in service to God. I promised I'd give this child to you. And I think the way she was able to do that was because she was changed through her prayer. Her prayer connected her with God in a different way. Her prayer made her trust God and she trusted that her child would be okay and that she'd eventually have more kids, which she did. So prayer can make you do things you didn't even think you wanted to do. And that's what Hannah did. Mm. She's faithful. I yes, swear. She, she is. really was a serious role model. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's Abigail. And Abigail. you indicate in the book that her story is not well known, but she's still one of your favorite successful moms of the Bible. She Why is. so? Well, one, it's really neat that she was actually my mother's favorite woman of the Bible. And Mm. my mom, before her death, we were able to share on that level of being serious Bible students, which was something I thought, I think brought her great joy to know that I enjoyed the Bible and my relationship with God had gotten to the point where we could talk about people in the Bible, like they were the Atlanta housewives or something. (laughs) (laughs) Abigail and my mother at this time in her life was a little older And I firmly believe she was looking back over her life and trying to figure out what she could deposit into me as her daughter, knowing she wouldn't be here forever. And one of the things she told me was, you have to be wise. You don't always have to be out front. You don't always have to say what's on your mind. You can be wise. And that's what Abigail was. Her husband was considered a fool. She went through some crazy stuff being married to this man. I'm sure a lot of dysfunction in the end Abigail was so wise and so smart. Her servants trusted her so much so that they came to her and told her when her husband basically put everyone in danger. She intervened secretly and fixed it. She ended up marrying the man she intervened for because her husband died. But then the man she married was King David, which I laughed about this recently as I was talking about the book. I said, yeah, we think she got the king and lived happily ever after. But if we remember anything about David, we know that wasn't the case. His Mm -mm. household was a mess. Mm -hmm. And here was this woman there. And we never hear about her children throughout the Bible. We hear about David's children. We know they tried to take the kingdom from him. They raped each other. They had serious issues. But Abigail, in the midst of that, somehow she used her wisdom to protect her kids in the midst of dysfunction. And that applies to us so much today. We oftentimes are in family makeups that we haven't chosen. And sometimes situations are serious that you can't necessarily get out of them so easily, but you can still use wisdom and you can still use, rely on God to give you information and to build trust and alliances that will profit you and keep your kids away from dysfunction. Mm -hmm. But you you know, the other lesson that it just reminded me of, and you, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but real bad girls move in silence. Yeah. Yeah. I like that, Laura. (laughs) Right. You don't have to show everybody your hand. Mm -hmm. And that was pivotal in in terms of her 
saving her family, as you indicated earlier, because her first husband was a serious stone cold fool. Yep, a stone cold fool. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, sometimes women find themselves in relationships with stone cold fools, whether it's a father, a dad, an uncle, something. But the way you make your moves, it just, you know, you can be wise and, and just smart about those moves. Absolutely. Okay, so let's hit Sarah, Elizabeth, and Rebecca. Okay, let's try to kind of knock those all together because they are Old Testament women kind of thought about as the matriarchs. Sarah, um, I got some flack on my presentation of Sarah through a Bible class at my church. They said you were kind of easy on her. And we know Sarah as the wife of Abraham who also had Hagar, the mm -hmm. servant who she basically made have a baby for her and then turned on her. It's mm -hmm. so much drama. I talk about Hagar in Successful Women of the Bible, the next book. But um, Successful Women of the Bible, I talk about um, Sarah because the way I see Sarah, I see her as a woman of faith. She did wrong. Yes, let me just say, I think taking somebody's servant and having making them have a baby with your old husband is not, <laughs> is not a good idea. And then turning on them is really not a good idea. But I think Sarah believed God. God had given Abraham a promise that he would have an heir. And Sarah was like, okay, we're old. I don't know how this is going to work, but let me see. Perhaps Hagar can have the baby. Perhaps Hagar can carry the promised child. So for Sarah, I offer that we really need to balance faith and action. Sometimes when we know we have a promise from God, when we feel something should be done, we jump in and we do it. Mm. We do it no matter what. In fact. Right. And, and we got to learn the balance. And it's a hard act. We got to learn how to balance faith and action. For the next woman, Elizabeth, I love her story because Elizabeth didn't have her child until later in life. She's one of those we quote a lot about delaying motherhood, um, not by choice, but by circumstances. But Elizabeth didn't allow bitterness to get in her way. And that's something I think is very hard to do when you've been disappointed in life, when you don't get what you expect especially when you've played by the rules, you mm -hmm. can become bitter and hardened and just turn against God even sometimes, not even knowing. But Elizabeth embraces her status. And when she does finally get pregnant, she's blessed with a visit from Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus. And we know that story of when Mary greets her, the baby jumps inside of her. And that's just um, an added benefit of Elizabeth waiting with a good heart, with a good attitude, not being bitter. So we and, can all learn from that because as women, even as mothers, we do put some things on the back burner. We sacrifice ourselves so we might not get to the party right when everyone else gets to the party because we got so much else going on or mm -hmm. we didn't even get an invitation because we're considered moms now. Um, but Elizabeth still teaches us how to keep going even when things don't work out in your timing. And what an amazing way to share motherhood, Mary yes. and her cousin Elizabeth. I mean, that's, yes. that that was just miracles on both ends. Yes, it definitely was. Yeah, they yeah. were. So Rebecca, I talk about successful moms know their own issues and don't let them become their kids' issues. We know of Rebecca and how she helped Jacob, her favorite son, trick her husband into getting the blessing that was really supposed to be for Esau. And I talk about how as women, when we become mothers or we are tasked with taking care of kids, our issues show up even bigger. Mm. A lot of times we think having this kid will make life perfect and wonderful, but no, it actually shows up more. I, I use this very example. I mean, I can use it on your show too. My daughter's tall for her age. She's mm you know, a tall girl. She's the tallest girl in first grade, probably taller than the second graders. And so when everyone would see her, they would say, oh, she's big. And I cringe. Mm -hmm. And I had to realize that was not about my child and her height. That was about me and my reflection of what I thought the word big meant. I thought they were saying something about me or about her size. And so mm -hmm. I had to learn that's your issue, Katera. You need to clear that up. That has nothing to do with your child. You do not need to react to it. You need to learn to embrace it and understand what it means and move on and rehear the word big in terms for who you want it to be, not right. what other issues are going on with you. That can happen a lot with relationships. 
It happens with anything you're dealing with. It's your issues that come up and they're highlighted a little more when you're having to deal with children. And if you want a healthy relationship with your child, as well as with yourself, you really have to work on those issues like Rebecca should have. <laughs> right, right. Yes. We're going to go to a break. And when mm-hmm. Full Body Frequency returns, okay. we're going to come back and talk about Leah. who she's a mess. Yes, Ruth, yes, yes. <laughs> and the ultimate wife and mother, the woman in Proverbs 31. We'll be right back. It's me, your heart. High blood pressure is serious. And if you think I'm just going to keep ticking away, you're wrong. I can quit whenever I want, but I like my job. Just treat me better. Maybe we can do some exercise on occasion. After all, we're in this together. Don't let your heart quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get yours to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Full Body Frequency is back, and if you've missed any part of this conversation, you can listen to the show in its entirety on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And this is Laura Rice, and my guest today is the author of a three-part series based on success in the Bible. Now, we've spoken about Jesus' mother, Mary, mm-hmm. Jacobed, Moses' fearless mom, your favorite, Abigail, mm-hmm. and we touch briefly on Rebecca, Sarah, and Elizabeth. Yes. So now on to Leah, Ruth, and the woman in Proverbs 31. Yeah, these are some of the spicier chapters I like a lot. Leah, um, her story is amazing. I tell you, when they say there's nothing new under the sun, there's nothing new under the sun. Leah thought having a child or having children would make her husband love her. Haven't we heard that before? Mm -hmm. And she kept having them over and over and over, not realizing, hey, this is not working. (laughs) Her chapter is about how we need to be careful with our relationships, whether married, single, dating, waiting, whatever, just know how that impacts you. It should be separate from the kid. Baby mama stuff should just be separate. I want the best for my kid. My kid's father may not be the best person, may not do this, may not do that. There's, It's complicated. I, I clearly understand. But really, when you're talking about raising kids, it's, it's a good idea to just try your best to keep that separate. In relationships and marriages, I talk about how Figure out a way to fix whatever you need to fix before it bleeds into the relationship with the child. As much as possible, try to keep that separate. Because mm-hmm. children deserve our love, our support, our nurturing for who they are, not for who created them or who their father is. Absolutely. So, so don't take out your anger right, on, on the, the father yeah. on yeah. your children. Exactly. And mm-hmm. I know that's hard to do because emotions are running hard. But really, I think Leah can show us some things from that. Absolutely. I mean, yes. really, we could do a whole episode on Leah and Rebecca. Oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah. You know, totally. It's like a <laughs> yes, yes. That's what I put in there. Feels like we're on Jerry Springer or something. When you're reading the Bible. Ruth is actually one of my favorite uh, mothers. Also, I just love the story of Ruth. I always have. Every time I read it, I get something different out of it. In this book, I focus on how Ruth teaches us how to utilize our village to raise our kids. Everyone who has kids or who's in charge of kids know how important that village concept is, but it's not easy. It is not easy to work with someone else's schedule, to work Mm -hmm. with someone else's way of handling kids and raising (laughs) kids. And you really do have to ask yourself what's more important, having a village, having help, or having it done my way. And that beautiful control word comes into play that we learn so well as mothers, you can't control everything. I tell stories about my mother and her mother. And when we would stay at my grandmother's house, they would get in arguments because of what my grandmother fed us. Again, I think that had to do with my own mom and her own insecurities around food and weight issues. Whereas my grandmother was using that to, she was in probably a marriage that didn't have a lot of love. Mm. So she used her grandkids as her love. So of course she fed us really, really good. (laughs) It just talks a little bit about the tension between mother and daughter. A lot of times adult mother and daughter, when they're dealing with kids, I had a wonderful story about a woman who actually put a perm, permanent hair chemicals in her grandchild's hair because she felt the child's hair didn't look good. 
That person probably had been teased as a kid. Her Mm -hmm. hair probably didn't look as good as she wanted it to look when she was growing up. So she reflected that onto her grandkid and caused a whole lot of trouble when that Mm -hmm. grandkid went back to her mother, who was actually her daughter-in-law. It's amazing how much trouble we can get into when we look at the village. But we need the village because no one can do it alone and you need a break. So how she utilized Naomi in that case, because Naomi was not a nice person. The Bible even calls her bitter, where she says, call me bitter because she's lost so much. So, but Ruth stuck by her side and was actually rewarded for hanging with her. And that is such a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. And of course, since I'm part of a village helping to mm-hmm. raise children and yes. care for elders, of course, this story is near and dear to me. Yeah. But as you mentioned, the village concept is not without its challenges. Right. Again, is that delicate dynamic between mothers and daughters and the mother and daughter-in-law with the story of the child coming back home with the permed hair. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think with Ruth, we learn how we're going to pick our battles. Yes, exactly. And that's what I had to do even, you know, even though my mother's not here, I've been blessed with a grandmother figure who, quite frankly, made me upset one day because one, she gives my child way too much sugar <laughs> and, and two, something happened. And my husband was wonderful at that moment. He stepped in and said, you know what? She does more good than harm. That stuck with me and that sticks with me even now. Because, you know, quite frankly, we're women and little things could get on our nerves. But she does more good, much more good than harm. <laughs> That's the most important thing. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. This is Laura Rice, and you're listening to Full Body Frequency. My guest today is author and editor, Katera Washington Patton. We're talking about Victoria's biblical mothers from her book entitled Successful Moms of the Bible, which is available in bookstores and online. So, Katara, we've come to the piece de resistance, mm-hmm. the resourceful wife and mother in yes, Proverbs 31. Yes, yes. This is really funny to me. You write about how you and your former co-workers during moments of <laughs> work life and mommyhood balance challenges made her the butt of many jokes. Well, the hate. Right. I mean, we just, if you've ever read Proverbs 31, maybe I was tired when I read it. Maybe I was jaded when I read it. But quite frankly, this woman seems way too perfect. I mean, she has it together. She works in the field. She makes the clothes. She makes sure they can eat. She takes care of this. She takes care of that. And it's just a real glowing, beautiful description of a woman who looks like she has done all of this without a hair out of place. And I just don't know women like that. (laughs) My mom friends just don't look like that. But um, as I unpacked Proverbs 31, my editor and I went back and forth on whether to include her. And we're like, well, she is kind of the picture of motherhood in the Bible. So we kind of got to mention her. I said, okay, fine. But I pieced it. I took a little verse by little verse, because that's all we can take of her (laughs) at once. Mm -hmm. And I looked at what those verses said, and I called it a collage of successful mothers. If you do some of this (laughs) on a good day, (laughs) if you factor this into your life, if you get this attitude she has, which is really the, the crux of the story, she fears the Lord. Okay, we can do that. We can we can begin to understand how she can do all of this when we take it into perspective and says that she is a woman who fears the Lord. She puts God first. Um, but we do unpack her and look at some things like she had servants. So mm-hmm. I use that to say, you know what? If you need to pay for help and you can afford it, do it. I used to feel guilty for ordering my groceries or even getting cleaning services in when I could. But quite frankly, really, (laughs) we can all use as much help as we can. So if the Proverbs 31 woman could manage her servants, I could try to get some people to help out, (laughs) help me in this motherhood journey too. Mm -hmm. So we end up with realizing she's a phenomenal woman, but we don't need to feel guilty when we don't live up to all she's done. But we can take some wonderful things away from her story and from the words of the Bible to apply to our lives as moms. You know, she appears to be as generous as she was resourceful. Yes, yes. Yeah. And with that in mind, you write about how children should learn and demonstrate the lesson of generosity on Mother's Day. So explain that. I And actually, I literally quote that. I quoted that at a speech this weekend on page 142. I talked about, 
once you listen to everything this girl does, this woman does, you realize, shoot, it's a no wonder Mother's Day is such a big deal. She handles her business and she keeps everybody in line. Let's bow down to this woman as a great figure <laughs> of mommyhood. Then the next paragraph, I say, speaking of Mother's Day, get those kids involved in creating and learning how to give. Even if it's a card they have made, even if you got to buy the markers and the construction paper and all the glue and glitter, make sure kids understand the value and the beauty of giving. A lot of times we give our kids so much. Have you ever seen a birthday party and all the, all the gifts they get? They're so used to getting now mm-hmm. that a lot of times they're not taught to give. Right. Mother's Day can actually be a perfect opportunity for that. You can make cards for mom. You can make cards for your granny. You can make cards for the aunt who takes care of you. You can make cards for anyone who's a mother figure in your life. If you have $10, you can go to the store and look for a gift. My daughter was so excited to go looking for a gift for me. And I told her father he needed to make time to make sure she took care of that. Not that I want a $10 gift from my daughter, but I want her heart to be shaped in knowing I want to honor mom. I want to appreciate mom. I want her to know that I love her and care about her. And this day is especially set aside for us all to do that. Well, as we wrap up, there's so much to learn from Mm -hmm. and laugh about in the successful moms of the Bible. But what's the one piece of wisdom that you would encourage readers to apply and practice regularly? That this is a journey. This is a journey ordained by God. God gave us kids. God gave us children. They're gifts, even when they don't always seem like gifts. And if we can really begin to see the sacred task for just that, a sacred task of serving, nurturing, guiding, supporting, we can begin to do it. And even in the book, I say we can take on um, the, the scripture that says we will renew our strength. Mothers get tired. Mothers get weary. But God is faithful. And when we are intentional about taking care of our relationship with God, speaking to God, praying to God, crying out to God, God is faithful to give us all we need to truly enjoy this journey and to enjoy our children. Well, before we go, please read the prayer at the end of Successful Moms of the Bible. Absolutely. Yeah, it so beautifully encapsulates the spirit of the book. And I I do pray that all moms and village keepers out there can really embody this prayer and, and pray this prayer too. Gracious and most holy God, give me the strength to do the best I can as mommy. Give me the wisdom to seek you for all things and to seek your guidance in raising the children you've entrusted to me. I don't feel as perfect as the Proverbs 31 woman, and I know that that is okay. You're seeking my heart, not my perfection. Turn my heart and mind toward you as I perform each task. Remind me that I'm in service to you as I serve my family. I gratefully accept each challenge of motherhood, knowing you are my provider and sustainer. I look forward to all that my children's lives hold, as I wait to see how you will surprise me as I journey on as mom. My life has been forever changed because I am called mommy. I am thankful. I am grateful. I am blessed. Amen. 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 Well, Katera Washington Patton, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much, Laura. Oh, you're you're welcome. I'm tearing up from the prayer. Are you? Oh, I am. I am. I am. Oh, thank you. It could, I can tell you really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for getting that deep into it. Oh, I did. I, I loved cool. it. Absolutely yeah. loved it. Absolutely yes. love it. When Full Body Frequency returns, we'll revisit our interview with Linda Jones on her book about the complex relationships between mothers and daughters and Cordelia and me, the pains, challenges, and journey of becoming me. We'll be right back. In my window. Yeah, world got me feeling like Malcolm. In my window, I climb inside. Yeah, gotta get away. In my window, I find peace of mind. Gotta find some time and space. In my window, I go inside.
Most mother-daughter relationships are a complex, diverse union of love, judgment and opinion, respect and admiration, emulation, control and rebellion. Some mothers and daughters develop trusted friendships, others do not. Linda R.M. Jones and her mother fall into the latter category. And her new book, Cordelia and Me, The Pains, Challenges, and Journey of Becoming Me, readers travel with Jones through a childhood and early adulthood filled with trauma. At the point of no return, Linda is forced to either accept the destructive behavior that permeates her life or reject it in order to develop a loving relationship with herself, her daughter Shyla, and to get the love she deserves. Well, we're going to do an excerpt from the book, Cordelia and Me. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about uh, Cordelia and a little bit about Vernon, just the beginning. Now, family life, she doesn't think she's funny, but I believe she is a hoot. Now at 76 years young, her stories are even funnier to me. Cordelia does not think she is a comedian. Mostly she is thought of as a complaining old mother by her five children. Cordelia was the second daughter in a family of six children. She has more than a few stories about those early years in West Virginia. One thing to understand as the second oldest, she was given a choice of chores. This is the early 1900s, and unlike today, children had chores or jobs around the house. No allowance or any payment for doing chores. You were part of a family, and everyone had to work. Cordelia's childhood choices set the stage for her adult life. She did not like housework. She worked outside in the yard. Having a garden was a normal practice for the majority of West Virginia families in the 1920s. With a growing family, her parents, William and Armidi Broughton, had a garden, a few fruit trees, and chickens. Cordelia helped with gardening, collecting eggs, and even hanging up the laundry. But housework was not for her. Now, we got to also meet the other man in this story. Now, a new man comes to town. Cordelia had just exercised one of her lifelong golden rules. It never hurts to be polite. Sometimes you should hold your tongue, but that was not Cordelia on that day. As he looks at her, she begins to blush and says quite naively, Oh, are you the new coach? I can tell you how to get to the gym. Cordelia's large eyes shine at the memory of that moment. Suddenly, this stranger produces his trademark smile and says with total confidence, Hi, I'm Vernon Mitchell, the new school coach. 18 and a high school graduate, she was intrigued by this good-looking new member of the teaching staff. He was young and appeared unmarried. At least that was a starting point. Her mother might find this teacher more acceptable than a local teenage boy or a childhood friend. Armidi Broughton was all about improving and uplifting the race. Wherever Vernon Mitchell, athletic coach, came from would not matter since he was a man improving himself and his people. Cordelia began to see a ray of hope in her sad and lonely world. Who is Vernon Mitchell? Where did he come from? Who are his people? How old is he? Is this his first teaching position? These are a few of the questions that members of the Negro middle class asked unknown suitors of their daughters. These questions were never asked of Vernon Mitchell. You see, Cordelia never took Vernon Mitchell, athletic coach, home to meet her parents. She began seeing him during the summer and kept that fact a closely held secret. But you got to find out what happens to Cordelia and Vernon. You have to read the story because there are some other people involved in this wonderful thing. Now, I can't tell you how I come in there, but the triangle that happens and the problems that the two of them have impact my life. And I'm Linda R.M. Jones, the author of Cordelia and Me. I can't wait for you to read the rest of Cordelia and Me. Linda R.M. Jones, congratulations on your new book, Cordelia and Me, and welcome to Full Body Frequency. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about my book with you today. Well, let's begin here. Your parents' marriage was one filled with abuse, mostly psychological in nature. You recently said that your parents played a game of Cold War with one another. Now, while your parents engaged in Cold War, you and your siblings played your own game, pitting one parent against the other to get what you wanted. Adding to that mix before fifth grade, you attended seven different schools in three cities and lived in eight to nine homes. Now, 
even though there were war games being played, what accounts for all of the games and all of the movement? Well, my father was in the Navy in the Second World War, probably because they may not have had enough money to pay rent. I have no idea why they moved so often, because my father always worked. When he lost a job, he got another job. He, normally, he was a, a brake mechanic, uh, a mechanic of some kind. Uh, if he had a car with a problem, he could fix it. So I'm not sure why we moved. We moved from city. I know we left Cleveland, Ohio, and went to Akron because he got a new job. They had where he normally worked had shut down for a while. They laid off, and he worked for the city of Cleveland as on the garbage detail. And then he took a job in Akron, and we stayed there for a year. Then he went back to the guy that he had worked for for years. So I would think that we moved probably because of not paying rent or not enough money. I don't know. I never asked them. We just always seemed to move. So now what about the games, though, that your parents played with one another and that you and your siblings played with each other against your parents? Well, my parents played Cold War. They would fume and fuss and glare at each other, and, and they had their their little way of communicating. And so you never heard of, you know, I never really, they weren't screaming, howling fights and throwing things and doing all that. But there was always hostility and animosity between the two of them. They were always angry at each other. And my little sister and I, who were the only ones left at that time at home, we all we had our own way that we got around our parents, and, and we did play a game of who to ask first. And, mm-hmm. you know, depending on what you wanted, you knew who to ask. If you wanted to go somewhere, and, you, and my mother would never say you could go. So we always asked her first because she would say no. And, of course, she did not understand that we played that. And so once she said no, we would just wait, and we'd tell our father, well, Mommy said we can't go. And he said, mm, okay. And then he'd just wait till she left, and he would say, let's go. We always knew if you needed some money, who to talk to. If you, if you wanted to go somewhere, you, you asked one person this, then you go and ask the other one, because they would never, ever agree. They would always make sure that whatever one said, the other would do the opposite. And that's... That's just the way they they did that to each other constantly. But how did these games and movement, how did they impact your life, your sense of security and belonging, or, or did it? Well, I never felt that I belonged anywhere. I moved constantly. I mean, I usually was in a school for a year. I would meet one girl that I would know. Most of the girls I didn't get along with. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. And then I was gone. So outside of my cousins and my siblings when I was in West Virginia, when I left there at the age of almost nine, right before I turned nine, we all moved. Everybody left my hometown. And so when we moved to Ohio, there was no one there. I didn't have any relatives there, and I didn't know anybody. So I had spent my younger years hanging out with cousins and friends who had been you know, children of my mother's friends. And so we had a whole different way of living. And then I'm in the city, and I'm going from school to school. And I really don't know anybody, so instead of being an outgoing kid, I was very much uh, an introvert. I really stopped talking. I didn't do very much. I just sat around and read books. wasn't playing outside. I didn't see people. I didn't know people. I really became very much sort of like a recluse. I wasn't involved in anything but a book. With this, it would seem that you were extremely protected in your home. Ironically, in your mother's attempt to protect you, and breathe virtue into you, nearly destroyed you. This protective measure literally encased you. So talk to us a little bit about that. And how did you begin to recognize her behavior and her words towards you as being abusive? Well, my mother had a favorite phrase that she would use as beauty is as beauty does and you have a long way to go. Sounds very simple, but every time you do anything, or you think you do something, or somebody says, oh, that's a nice job, her response would be, beauty is as beauty does, and beauty's got a long way to go. And you've got a real long way to go. And so mm-hmm. that was always her, her, her refrain. It didn't matter if I brought home a good grade, which I often didn't because I didn't pay attention in school. I mean, I brought home A's and B's and B's and C's, but I knew better, I mean, I knew that better not bring home an F. My father would probably have killed me. But... I never, ever had anything of my mother saying, you know, that's nice. I'm glad you did it. She was never a positive reinforcing person for me. So I didn't really have a lot of self-esteem. I spent a lot of time crying, trying to figure out, you know, what did I do wrong and why did I do it and how did I do it, not knowing, you know, to do anything any differently or better. So a lot of the time that I spent 
from the age of 11 when I actually had puberty till I left home at about 19. I usually was trying to get out of the house, go to a rehearsal, do something because I could get to a rehearsal. They, that was fine. I'd go to the theater and I'd come back home. But there wasn't, even if I did a show, there was nothing positive. I did a dance class, there wasn't anything positive. So basically, my sense of self-security, my self-image, I didn't really have a very good sense of that, of any of that. This is Laura Rice, and if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Full Body Frequency. My guest this segment is Linda R.M. Jones, the author of Cordelia and Me, The Pains, Challenges, and Journey of Becoming Me, which is available at Amazon.com. How much of your body image played in your mother's attempt to protect your virtue? All of it. My mother really, as I began to develop, when I hit 11 years of age, the world began to really change. Uh, She became very conscious of the fact that I was at this particular age. The first thing that happened on the first day of my menstrual cycle, it was like trauma. I'd never heard of it, didn't know what it was, didn't know what she was screaming about. And outside of the screaming and hollering, her response was because the toilet backed up and everything overflowed, what did I do and why? Now the boy downstairs knew that I had a period. I'm Mm. like, huh? I didn't even know what a period was. I'd never heard of it before. So I'm like, okay. And so it became, you know, this is all your fault. Now you're telling everybody what's going on. I didn't know what I had done or why or what the problem was because I hadn't told anybody anything. I'm trying to figure out what it is. Any woman who's ever, you know, when you get your first day in menstrual cycle, you're not quite prepared for whatever it is, no matter if they've told you anything. And in my case, nobody told me anything. Mm. So everything from there on was a, a whole world of movements where she is overly concerned about people seeing me, noticing me, talking to me, boys talking to me, men talking to me, um, anybody outside trying to have a conversation with me or influence me. She was determined that the outside world was not going to influence me. I was going to be this person that she wanted, and she was really focused on that. She wanted to make sure, in her mind, the way that she had interpreted the world is that other people made you who you were. They could mm. they could make you into things that you shouldn't be. And so she was very concerned that men would say things to me, young boys would say things to me, and that I would be influenced and have unacceptable behavior. Because she had experienced the result of that in her personal life. That's part of her, her story. So right. she was transferring her own, her own insecurity about what happened to her onto me and trying to make sure that I did not become this woman of loose morals, which was someone she had experienced in her life. And right. I, I, was just, I, I was just not that person. I reminded her of, of this relative but I wasn't the relative, and although my father would try to alleviate some of that, her psychological stress was that the outside world is going to ruin my daughter. I'm not going to have it. It doesn't, didn't matter. I was only 125 pounds. How much can you attract people at 11, 12, 13, 125 pounds? Um, so I didn't have very much body, but that didn't matter. Dancing, movement. All of that was unacceptable to her simply because it attracted attention to my body. In some ways, it didn't matter about your size. It did matter about your shape. Yes. So your, what was your shape at that time? I was known as a Pepsi-Cola bottle. Okay. I, people, people would call me a Pepsi-Cola bottle, 34, 24, 36. Mm-hmm. And at that, at that period in history, that was very much a popular shape. Women had small waists. You know, and they had balanced bust lines and hips, and that was called the Pepsi-Cola bottle or Coca-Cola bottle, either way you look at it, because they made that bottle with the curve. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that was a desirable shape, and women really tried to have that shape. Well, I didn't try. just That was just what it was. Mm-hmm. And so because I had, and generally I would have 10 inches, a 10-inch difference between my bust line, you know, and your waist. So there, there's always a sort of balance that you have going on. And that attracted attention. 
people would talk to me. I mean, I've had, even as a 13 or 14-year-old, I would have men come up and, and say hello and speak to me, and my mother would just go ballistic. I mean, you know, we could be somewhere in a store, and someone would say hi, and I would just say hello, and you're supposed to be polite to people. And that would just set her off on a whole tangent. Get away from my daughter. Don't speak to my daughter. And I'm and the man just said hi. I, I just spoke. Um, but it was the the body was very much in her mind tantamount to what she had experienced in other women who were attractive. They flaunted it, and so she did not appreciate that. I mean, even until I was forty. I mean, I was in my 40s, and my mother still had the same response. Hold that thought real quick, because mm-hmm. I want to go back to something you alluded to a little earlier. And we all know that no behavior ever exists in a vacuum. And so let's go back to there were a number of family secrets that guided your mother in the manifestation of her verbal abuse towards you. And not to give away every detail of the book, but share with our audience a bit about your mother and her sister, your Aunt Doris, and their relationship. And you've already explained a little bit about how it impacted you as a child, but how did it impact you as an adult? Well, as an adult... It took me a while. I eventually found out that my mother and my aunt had had this big traumatic episode and their conflict, and, and the, the conflict centered around my father. So I, I knew of this. I finally heard about the conflict. And the entire conflict was really, for me, I simply did not know that it existed for years. But my mother was always upset by it, always angry about it. And even as an adult, she continued to compare me to my aunt to look to see what I was doing and what, you know, was I like my aunt? Did I have loose morals? Did I not, you know, how did I make decisions? She was always, even until the fact that I married the second time, she came to my wedding, my second marriage, bringing me garments in order to tame my body because you have just mm. too much body and you have to wear this and you have to do this. It is something that for her was always an issue of my physical appearance. I became very, very self-conscious. I'm still learning how not to be as self-conscious about how I physically look and how I'm physically shaped. And I've, I've trained myself to understand that even if I weigh 125 pounds, I'm still going to have a tiny waist and big hips. That's just my bone structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mm-hmm. shoulders and my hip bones are very wide. And I mean, I've, my doctors even told me that your hip bone sits way out here. You're not going to have like flat hips or nothing. You've got that kind of African shape. So I've had to learn to be very clear with myself. And sometimes I joke about it, but it is still at moments difficult. I'll find myself going to get dressed and I have a friend who I go to his boutique to get clothes, and he says, you can wear that. I said, no, this is a little too much. This is too tight, too snug. I can't put that on. I still, that is my challenge now to continue to work on the shadow of Cordelia because I still have moments when I go to get dressed, I'm like, oh, not wearing that. So there, there are still issues that I have with totally accepting that I have these, you know, big hips. And even when I get skinny, I'll still have big hips. So as you move through your life, you found your you found Cordelia in you. Explain that to us. And not just about the the voices that you heard about taming your body or put put that girdle on or put that shaper on, but you internalize a lot of what your mother said to you and it came out in different ways. I found myself, I guess, the most shocking when I was, um, after I was divorced the first time, I I found raising my daughter, I have a son and a daughter, and my daughter was doing something. And I heard in my mind as I went to chastise her, my mind said, beauty is as beauty does, but beauty is only skin deep. And I froze. And I was like, oh, no. Cordelia, you do not live here. You don't live here. Mm -hmm. Get out. This is not your house. Because it was just such a phrase. She wasn't doing anything, you know, spectacular. She was just being a kid. But it was just the response that came through to me. 
and I I had to really eliminate Cordelia because there are things that you hear that come from your childhood and they're part of you and, and unless you're paying attention you don't always know that they're there and and that you're carrying them around uh, which is sometimes why we repeat the same behavior. Now, how did you manage to behavior. stop yourself from repeating this pattern of abuse with, with your own daughter? Well, I'm a student of, I mean, I have a lot of spiritual training that I do. I've done a lot of different things. I'm a follower of um, particular, I should say new thought teachings is what they generally call it. And I have gone through processes with myself because my intention before I got divorced, my intention was to improve myself. I understood that I could not move ahead or get anywhere unless I worked on me. And so in that process, I taught dynamic thought and understood those principles. And so I would apply the disciplines to myself to eliminate things that were not for my highest good. Now that you've instilled a healthy dose of self-love into your daughter, Shyla, what's next for you? Well, I've written a book. I'm not clear on what is actually next for me, where I'm going. I have two businesses that I'm, I'm running. I'm Jeunesse Global Independent Distributor, and I'm also part of Divi Social, and I have the book. So I have three avenues, and I'm not clear at this precise moment how I'm going to continue to develop. I do want to have speaking engagements. I promised 30 years ago that I would work with women who have been abused because I understand other sides of abuse. Not everybody talks about the physical, but there's a lot of mental and emotional abuse. I promised in a spiritual process that I went through that I would in my future talk with and work with women in terms of recognizing the other areas of abuse that we experience. So that is part of what this journey is about. It's really Hopefully, my book lets people think about, allows you and encourages you to reflect on the fact that abuse is not just the fact that you got knocked upside the head and, and you, know, you had to go to the emergency room and somebody's beating you. It is the other subtle things that we do and say to our children and that's done and said to us and that we repeat, which really affects that which is truly our soul. That is one of the things I hope I can do in this phase of my life. Wonderful. Well, Linda R.M. Jones, thank you so much for being with Full Body Frequency today. And thank you for inviting me and sharing this moment in my life with you, this time that I am exploring new avenues and sharing more of myself. And I'm so glad that I know you and that you invited me to this experience. Oh, you're so welcome. Now, to learn more about Linda R.M. Jones's story, including how she found the love of her life, to whom she's been married for over 26 years, make sure you order a copy of her book, Cordelia and Me, The Pains, Challenges, and Journey of Becoming Me, at Amazon.com. After this final break, Full Body Frequency returns with this week's Plus One from a woman whose mother has been dead for over a decade. Major Key Alert. Life is like school. You will be tested, so pass it. Learn the real major keys to getting to college at GetSchooled.com. Brought to you by Get Schooled and the Ad Council. Full Body Frequency is back, and this week's Plus One comes from womanist, social worker, and writer Liz Alexander, whose mother has been gone 13 years. Liz writes, as Mother's Day approaches, it can be a painfully grief-written and triggering experience for daughters who have experienced mother loss. Having experienced the loss of my own mother in my early teens and living without her now as a woman, I've had to redefine my experience of Mother's Day. In my redefinition, I've come up with five steps for getting through. Step one, feel it. In the words of poet Nayira Wahid, fall apart. Please, just fall apart. Open your mouth and hurt. Hurt the size of everything it is. Liz goes on to say, give yourself permission to feel whatever feelings come up for you. If it is grief, let it overtake you. If it is joy, let it overtake you. Be in the present moment. Step two, remember her. Remember her voice, remember her laughter, remember her smell, remember her touch, remember her hugs, remember her kisses, remember her embrace, remember her favorite things, remember her wisdom, remember her guidance, call out her name in remembrance. 
Step three, reconnect with her. Invoke her energy. Take out whatever things of hers you've kept. Take out her pictures and her journals. Invoke all of your favorite memories of her. Recall all the stories of her that you've heard from other people. Feel her presence. Step four, give thanks for her life. Give thanks for the opportunity to know her, to have met her. Give thanks for the time you spent with her. Give thanks for all the things she taught you. Give thanks for experiencing her love. Step five, honor your other mamas and mama figures. Honor the women who took time to see you. Reach out to the women who saw your life worthy enough for them to love and care for you as their own. Honor the women who said, I want to be here for you. Celebrate the women who considered you to be so special that they invited you into their family, created a space for you at their table, and offered their advice and their embraces in times of need. Call on them. Show your gratitude. Value them. Honor them. To read more, visit ForHarriet.com and search Liz Alexander. And Liz Alexander can be found on Twitter at Radical Wholeness. That's Radical Wholeness with one S. Until next time, tune into your own full body frequency where large is luscious living.